0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Well, now to the voice from beyond the grave, the man who bills himself as the coffin confessor... And you pay that person thousands of dollars... ..to
2: deliver a few home truths to the people sitting there.
3: Bill Edgar is a private investigator from Australia's Gold Coast. His popularity soared when his very strange side hustle hit headlines all over the world for weeks.
0: He asked you to turn up at his funeral and ask certain people to leave.
3: Taking up hours of time on talk shows from Wellington... The coffin confessor. Would you hire
0: him? No.
3: ...to Washington.
0: People are paying you to say this after they're dead.
3: So why was everyone so obsessed with this guy? Who exactly is he and where did he come from? And I wonder if he might have had a few secrets of his own.
0: I'm Elizabeth Coolass, Welcome to Days Like These. Would you have someone come to your funeral and drop a truth bomb on the ones you love after you're gone? Padabud, our lead reporter, today you bring us the story of the Coffin Confessor.
3: Yeah, Ellie, we're talking wall-to-wall media coverage, telling us the Coffin Confessor, aka Bill Edgar, is paid loads of money to do this, right? And he reckons he's the only person in the world doing it too.
0: So why would somebody want to do that for a job?
3: I know, it's wild, right? How does it work? Well, I guess the only person that can take us behind the scenes of it all is Bill himself. Oh, and by the way, just a warning, there's some sensitive material in this episode that might not be quite suitable for kids to hear.
4: So Pat, I'm just about to walk into the funeral service now, so if you can just uh, bear with me. There's probably about 35 people at this one. There's actually a uh, gentleman at the moment, Uh, looks like he's doing a eulogy. You'll probably hear the interruption, and then I'll cut you off. And here I go. Just give me one sec. Excuse me, excuse me, everybody. My name's Bill Edgar, and I am the coffin confessor from my client who's laying in the coffin. Please bear with me while I open this envelope and read aloud what your loved one, friend, or associate had left unsaid.
3: That's Bill reenacting what he'd normally do when he crashes a funeral, and he's a Pretty good actor, right?
4: After I do the job, I place the letter on the coffin. I walk out. Anybody says anything, fuck them. I don't give a flying fuck. I don't care about them. It is about my client, first and foremost.
3: In case you're wondering, Bill is tall, very tall, blonde, buff, with a neat buzz cut. He's self-assured, with a friendly smile, and he seems to really love his job.
4: I've probably got uh, seven funerals in the waiting I've uh, sat with these people, I've got their stories. Some of them are quite... uh, They're going to be very confronting for people left behind.
3: And you can see why his story spread like wildfire across the world's media. Death, secrets, betrayal, suspense. It's basically a Netflix series just waiting to be written. But before we get deep into the plot of Bill Edgar's rise to fame, we need to know how he goes from private investigator to Celebrity Coffin Confessor.
4: Oh, Pat, it was a uh, complete accident, to be honest with you. What happened is, there's a client of mine that was terminally ill and we started talking about death, the afterlife and things like that. He said he'd like to go out with a bit of a bang and, you know, he's got a few things that he'd like to say and I suggested he do his own eulogy. You know, I thought that was a good idea. But he said that his family and friends wouldn't play the eulogy because they'd probably be too embarrassed or it'd be too confronting. So then uh, jokingly, I said, how about I crash your funeral for you? And about three weeks later, I received a text message from him that said, Bill, I'm going to take you up on that offer and uh, you're going to crash my funeral for me. And so I did.
3: In almost every interview, Bill tells us he's crashed loads of funerals and his service doesn't come cheap. It's $10,000 a pop. So they always pay you up front, the person that's about
4: to die oh, yeah well, the money goes into a trust account yes
3: and they pay the ten thousand dollars
4: outright up front you got it exactly
3: what sort of reactions do you get from people at these funerals
4: straight away it's shock and it's hatred who the hell is this person how dare he interrupt this service what gives him the right to do this ask him to leave or drag him out however I'm pretty quick on my feet and I'm pretty quick with the you know what I have to say and as soon as I get the crowd on my side, To be honest with you, most of the people there want to hear what their loved one had left unsaid. My third funeral that I ever did, I was engaged by a uh, bikey from the big major bikey gang. Uh, I attended this man's funeral. It was a um, burial. It was in uh, uh, northern New South Wales. The coffin was going into the ground. And I interrupted the service. I open an envelope and I read exactly what was written. To all the club members, just to let you know, I was gay. Stop looking around, everybody. You're not going to see who it is, but he is in the crowd. You know, a couple of the bikies were a bit upset, but those that truly knew and loved that man, they understood. His Harley Davidson was placed on, on top of his coffin, and it was buried. No one would know that, only the people that were there. It was pretty cool. And to be honest with you, I got another two funerals from that. So a couple of guys came up to me and said, look, you know, you're hired for me, and I need your number, and it was great.
3: And it's not just delivering messages for the dead that's transformed Bill into a tabloid star. He also does these pre-death home sweeps.
4: A gentleman had a fall. He was taken to hospital and he got told he would not be able to go back home. He will probably go straight into palliative care and die in hospital. Now, his major concern was what was left behind at his home. I went up to Toowoomba. I met this gentleman. He said, what are you going to find? He's going to be shocking. I don't want my sons, my, my daughter-in-laws, I don't want anybody to find it. He, you know, gave me sort of a mud mat type thing. I went to where he said to go, and I found a, uh, what you'd call a sex dungeon. Um, For an 88-year-old man, he had some toys there, I tell you. (laughs) Like what? A number of uh, vibrators. There was a sex swing. There was a leather mask, handcuffs, chains. There was about $17,000 in cash. There was a USB, and there was his uh, computer to be... uh, basically cleaned and cleared.
3: Great cliffhanger for episode three of the Netflix special, but that's about as far as the media blitz went with Bill's story. So Bill, how do you do the deal? Do they sign a contract?
4: Well, uh, our first meeting's recorded. Um, Yes, there is a contract and I have to do that just in case I'm ever litigated or police want to question me. So of course I've got to cover myself so yes, there's a contract, there's a video, and um, there's obviously the letter.
3: That's the letter the client writes, listing what Bill is to spill at their funeral. And that video recording, the contract, that's to prove what he does is legit. So Bill, can you show me any of those videos that you record when you meet the client for the first time?
4: I have a confidentiality clause. I can't disclose anything. I have, uh, I have my own solicitors and lawyers and team that I've, you know, advised of course. I mean, and this has to be done very uh, properly and uh, in a manner that, you know, all parties are understanding. I can even forward you one of my contracts if you want.
3: I'd love that. That'd be great to see it. Cool.
4: Won't be a problem. So I'll send you the um, the emails, uh, the um, contracts. There's two contracts, one for... Um, crashing funerals and the other one for going into their homes and cleaning out uh, property.
3: I didn't get copies of any emails. Bill did send me a copy of a contract, but it was blank. What I'm really curious about is I guess I just want to hear from like the people on the other side of this, you know, the people that are there when you crash
4: a funeral. Did that lady get in touch with you?
3: That lady is a client Bill tells me has just booked him to crash her funeral.
4: According to her, she contacted you and left a message
3: you call Pat. Sorry, I can't take your call. Uh, please leave me a message. You have no messages. What about the lover of the gay bikey? Yeah, he, what about him? Was he at the funeral that you crashed? Yeah, crushed?
4: of course he was. Yeah. I, I had no idea who he was until a week later when I received a message. So I FaceTimed this bloke and he said, look, you know, I was the lover. I was the gay lover standing in the crowd. I'm, uh, I was shocked, but at the same time, I knew something was going to happen. He said, oh, I, I really loved it. He said, I, I was emotional, but to be honest with you, he said, I fucking loved what you did. Thought it was great. At least he got to go his way, not somebody else's. So do
3: you reckon I could talk to him, Bill? I don't know. What I'm asking is, can I talk to anyone that's been at any funeral that you've, that you've crashed?
4: Not by me, you can't. I can't disclose anything. I don't care, mate. Seriously, it's not. It's not about those left behind. It's about my client.
3: Do you understand why people might doubt what you're
4: doing? Absolutely. Do I care? What would you say to those the doubters? I don't. I, I don't have to say anything. Don't care. No response. I can't disclose anything.
3: A couple of days later, I get another call from Bill. Good day, Bill.
4: Good day, Did you ever miss call?
3: No. Nope. I'm sitting here with a
4: phone. Right now, I'm I'm on the phone.
3: I've got the phone in my hand. The phone is literally in my hand. I've got to
4: call you right now because I'm on. She's on hold. I'll give you a call back. Okay, no worries. She'll call you right now. Okay.
3: Moments later, my phone lights up with a private number. Hello, this is Pat. Hi, Pat. Hey, you're um calling your bill you you're calling re bill right yeah no worries hey look thanks for calling me i won't keep it too long yeah i've been i've been talking to bill and i'm doing this this story with him yeah. about about what he does and because it's had such massive attention mm-hmm. um people are very curious about how it all works yep. so first tell me what what contact have you made with bill and what have you booked bill to do
2: Okay, so I heard about him all on uh, obviously the media attention that has gone silly with it. And what I have engaged him to do is to pass my words on at my service when I die.
3: And can I? Yeah. Can you tell me any more information about you? Like, can I get your full name or where you live or like?
2: Yeah, I just don't. I don't want my name publicised all over this. Do you know what I mean? I said to Bill that I would do this. That's yeah. That's what all I'm kind of agreeing to, Patrick.
3: And how much did you pay? Can I ask?
2: No, <laughs> that's my that's my business. If you don't mind, we're talking thousands. We're not talking hundreds. We're yeah.
3: And so, where did you pay the money to?
2: To our trust account.
3: A trust account that Bill set up. Correct. The question that I think most people would be wondering about is you're going to be six feet under and you've spent thousands of dollars on this guy crashing your funeral, but you've got no way of knowing whether or not he actually does it once you're gone. Oh,
2: yeah. Look, yeah, you're right. Yes. And I get that everyone has questions. I don't, I, I understand that. But I guess I look at it. No different to prepaying a funeral pra- a funeral plan. What's the difference? Shit, whatever's gonna happen's gonna happen. And and I'm gone, man, so couldn't give a shit for my money. But <laughs>
3: So why do you want Bill to crash your funeral? What do you want oh, Bill to do?
2: Personal. Um, like my my things that I want said, um I wouldn't I wouldn't say to you, Patrick, I wouldn't even tell my husband. Um, but there's personal things that, that I want said to, you know, family, friends and, and things that I want done at the funeral. That's that's my personal story. So yeah, no, I wouldn't disclose that.
3: I've asked Bill many times to send me some of the videos he's recorded to put me in touch with...
2: Oh, no, yeah, see, um, I, I signed a, like, a private confidentiality thing, so no, and and I wouldn't give that to anybody.
3: What evidence did he give you that he'll actually deliver? His word? I guess I'm going to have to put this to rest, but... Right before my last conversation with Bill wraps up, I realise there is one thing I haven't actually asked him.
4: To be honest with you, I am so open book, mate. I, I really am.
3: That question that he's asking of all of us, what would be in Bill's envelope?
4: Ask me anything about myself. I'm an open book.
3: What secrets would he want shared at his funeral when he's gone?
4: Tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up on the Gold Coast. I arrived here when I was uh, three or four years old from Victoria Broadmeadows I was born.
3: And what was your childhood like, Bill?
4: Uh, Well, if you could say I had a childhood, it was uh, full of uh, rape, molestation, abuse, uh, bashings, uh, ridicule. Um, Yeah, it it was pretty toxic, mate.
3: The moment my conversation with Bill takes a turn here, this media obsession, including mine, feels pretty stupid now. It feels like the Coffin Confessor might just be that slightly overwritten character in the Netflix special. Maybe it's just been easier for Bill to be that guy than just being himself.
4: No one helped me when I was crying out at 13, 14, 15 years of age. I wanted to help then. No one helped me. It was horrific. Is it hard
3: for you to talk about this stuff now, Bill?
4: No, not at all. You know what? The very first time was the night before my eighth birthday. I'll never forget it. He abused me continually until I was uh, nearly 14 years of age. Um, it was a, a weekly or a weekend event for him. Um, you know, he'd take me fishing, he'd grab the fish and he'd hold the fish in front of my face and stab it a few times and say, this is what had happened to you if you ever told anybody.
3: Bill, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear this, and I'm so sorry you went through these awful experiences. H- how did you get through this as a teenager?
4: I ended up running away. I ran away from home. I lived on the streets of Surface Paradise.
3: Bill tells me he was homeless for most of his teens. The trauma of his childhood landed him in constant trouble with the law... At 18, he says he ended up in the notorious Boggo Road Jail and he explains how he got done for demanding property with menaces, which basically means threatening to injure someone if they don't give you the thing that you were trying to steal. After a year in lockup, things took a turn for the better.
4: A uh, screw, which is, a, you know, a guard came up to me and he's uh, Irishman, his name was Paddy O'Connor and he worked at the jail for some time and he came up to me and he said, Billy, he said, you keep doing what you're fucking doing, you will never leave this place. Be a better man. I was uh, 19 when I walked out of Bogger Road. I walked out of the front of the prison. Paddy O'Connor escorted me out of the big fucking iron gates. We stood there. I took my shoes off at the gates and I walked down Bogger Road bare feet. Oh, I was wearing socks, sorry. Socks only And Paddy of stood at the gate And this is exactly what he said And I can still hear it today He said, Billy, where the fuck you think you're going? Come back and get the shoes And I said to Patty, There's no fucking way I'm getting them shoes They brought me in here They ain't bringing me back
3: So what does the future look like
4: For you now, Bill? Oh, Mate, I'm 52 years old I've made it to 52 I'm fucking wrapped The future's good this is the biggest thing that I'm trying to get across to people is that you want to prepare for your own funeral, bloody prepare for it then. Leave a loving message for those you love or tell those you love to hate to fuck off. Once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. It's gone.
0: Well, Pat, Bill has had a life with quite a few different chapters.
3: Yeah, I know, right? I mean, he's been through a hell of a lot.
0: Something about the media's obsession with him and with his story as the coffin confessor, it hasn't sat quite right with you through the whole thing, Pat. Where did you land on that?
3: Good question, Ellie. What I do know is the media's still obsessed with Bill. He's just got a book deal, he's signed with a big talent agent and there's a TV deal in the works, apparently. As for the doubts around his very unusual job, I really wasn't able to find anything that said he wasn't Doing these funeral crusher gigs. And I mean, that's really been the problem this whole time for me. Given that all these clients are dead, I wasn't able to talk to any of them.
0: I eagerly await part two of your story, Pat, maybe reported from beyond the grave. (laughs) You and me
3: both. And look, slide right into my DMs. Invite me to your funeral. That does sound pretty creepy, but seriously, I'm going to put it out there. If you've booked Bill Edgar to crash yours, we really want to hear from you. We want to come to your funeral. In the meantime, though, I can't wait for the Coffin Confessor's Netflix special. Yeah, and so, you've signed a deal to make a TV series. Is that right? Is that happening? Or in oh, that's,
4: that's the rumor.
3: <laughs> is that is that a, is that a rumor or is it for real? No, I can't confirm or deny. So what sort of person do you reckon would play your character in this drama series?
4: I've always said that, uh, you know, it's got to be someone with a, a unique voice. Russell Crowe's voice is just great.
3: I think you should act in
4: it yourself. You'd be great. You're not the first person to say that. He speaks for the dead. Excuse me. Excuse me, everybody. My name's Bill Edgar, and I am the Coffin Confessor from my client who's laying in the coffin secrets from beyond the grave. Please bear with me while I open this envelope and read aloud what your loved one, friend or associate had left unsaid. He's the coffin
0: confessor.
4: Leave a loving message for those you love or tell those you love to hate to fuck off. Once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Coming to Netflix this spring.
0: If you're enjoying Days Like These, please support us by leaving a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. It helps new people find the show and that helps us to keep making it. If there's a story you want us to hear, please also email us. You can send a voice memo or a note. Our email is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Next time on Days Like These, after Rupert's beloved bike is stolen, he's put in touch with an obsessive ex-cop who's made it his personal mission to to fight bike crime. And together, they'll stop at nothing to get it back.
1: G'day, I'm Brad from Bike Fault. I just thought, what's this guy up to? What's he want? I treat it as a crime scene, Um, so I, hands-on, would contact each victim and have a chat with them and discuss through what they could do to better their odds of recovery and, again, locking down that
0: evidence. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Our season two reporting team includes Sam Wicks, James Viver and Belinda Lopez. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick. Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Pada Budd, John Jacobs and Russell Stapleton, with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Till. The supervising producer for this episode was Rachel Fountain. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time.
3: Yeah Nah. Dear visitors, starting in two minutes' time,
1: there will be a free... All right. All right. (coughs) I am recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh, God, security looking at me. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kind of... Dole stuff.
0: It's shameless. It's so blatant.
1: And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission.
2: What happened here 250 years ago?
1: So I realised this is a quagmire.
0: That is an insult?
1: Well, just get over it.
0: People just burst out laughing.
1: Whoa, you know, like, yeah, nah, that was a that was a good time. Time. You see, sitting in museums and galleries like this across the UK are certain objects. Objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire. I've been tracking down exactly how it is they ended up here. And let me tell you... He was in desperate trouble. It is wild.
2: Dramatic and very bloody. You look them in the eyes and it's tears. You are weak. There's no way to stop it.
4: The tiger's roaring, the man screaming. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us.
2: Thousands of people are murdered.
4: It was really bizarre. The savagery. We were left
2: here to die. There are conquerors and victims.
1: And those stories are going to take you on a smuggling operation to Nigeria.
4: They were stolen. They were looted.
1: You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage. <laughs>
4: There was hand-to-hand fighting in the streets.
1: Into a war in India.
4: I mean, if somebody literally dug your father's grave up. Once a king is vanquished and his entire family has to suffer.
1: To China. This is your fate. Things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and
2: you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times. Because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us.
1: You'll get tattoos in New Zealand.
2: You feel different, there's no doubt about it.
1: And all the way back to Australia just surrounded in flames. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences. You know, it's just being shot. To the British people listening, please don't feel personally attacked by this. Thank you for the railways and the legal system and the smallpox and the greatest karaoke song of all time, Wonderwall. We're cool. But there is this whole other side to history. This was one of the great crimes of the 19th century.
0: People are fainting in horror at the sight of it. You could see the the depths of of
1: hatred. You see, these objects may be old, but they tell us about today. And I think it was that that evening when I actually opened up that letter and it was just, can you
2: please help us? It appeared to be an injustice.
1: From laws to borders to wars. Here, Your Highness, we're so happy to have gone to war to protect your good name as the world's largest narco baron. I mean, come on. (laughs) And all of it has shaped who we all are today. Knowing where you come from, Gives you confidence as to
3: what you do and who you are as a person.
1: We're here 250 years later still. The simple truth is that the impact of the British Empire, the the colonialism, it was messy.
2: It's the marker of a time in history.
1: And that's what I'm going to try and make sense of. How we ended up with our world told through a shield, a mask, a spear, just some stuff that the British stole.